Welcome and thank you for standing by. At this time, all participants are on a listen-only mode until the question and answer session of today's conference. At that time, to ask a question, please press star, followed by the number one on your phone, and mute your phone and record your name when prompted. This call is being recorded. If you have any objections, you may disconnect at this time. May I introduce your speaker for today, Reese Gerholt. Please go ahead. Thank you very much, and good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Reese Gerholt with World Resources Institute, and we are a global research organization that works on the nexus of um, the environment and the economics um, on, on a variety of issues, including climate change, obviously, and we are closely following the UN Climate Action Summit, which, um, of course, is, is well underway and um, will come to a close in about three hours from now. We wanted to give you some early insights on our, our thoughts on where things are headed and our reflections on uh, what the uh, summit has accomplished. Um, so I actually have three speakers with us today. Um, first, Helen Monfort, Vice President, Climate and Economics for uh, WRI. Uh, Dave Waskow, the International Climate Director um, with the Climate Program. And then uh, Yamiya Dadnet, um, who's the um, a Senior Fellow for the Climate uh, Program as well. Um, so we'll, we'll um, speak in that order and uh, take your questions afterwards. Um, just to remind you too, we will have this call um, recorded. And so if you didn't, if you weren't able to join on, on time or you have other colleagues who want to listen to it, please let me know and we'll do what we can to support you. Um, but I know you all are very busy at this, this time and other countries are actually speaking on the floor. So I will quickly hand, it, um, hand the floor now over to Helen. Thank you. Thanks very much, Reese, and, and hello all. Great to speak with you. Um, I think what we're seeing here in the the sort of the reflection of what we've seen culminating over the last couple of weeks and months, the growing demand for action, and that includes the strikes on Friday with over 4 million uh, people, youth and adults in the streets around the world, growing private sector and investor action, uh, realization of the the need to shift to a low-carbon economy and the opportunities of doing so. And what we're seeing in the hall today um, is some of these private sector and other initiatives really starting to step up. We're seeing some exciting uh, commitments uh, from smaller and mid-sized countries, including some of the most vulnerable developing countries, um, most at risk from climate change. But um, what we've seen so far is really not the kind of climate leadership that we need from the major economies. We have not seen most of them coming forward with the kind of leadership here today that we were looking for. All eyes are going to be very firmly fixed on them over the next couple of months, looking at whether they're going to be able to step up and deliver what is needed um, in time for uh, COP26 in 2020. That's when countries need to come back and really start to close the gap between what was agreed in the Paris Agreement and what more is needed to keep us um, on track for a safe climate in the future. Uh, so at the moment, we're seeing some, some exciting initiatives, more from the private sector and from some of the small and medium countries, um, not yet what we need from the major economies. But let me just run through a couple of numbers we've seen. Um, we've had something like 65 countries in the lead up and today, lead up to the summit and today, which have committed that they will step up their climate ambition and their national action in 2020. So we've got 65 countries on the hook offering to do that. We've got something like 66 countries which have said they will be setting long-term 
carbon neutral targets for their economies, um, including five new ones that came up uh, today. Uh, so that is moving forward. We've also seen a number of countries starting to respond to the Secretary General's call to really power past uh, coal uh, to stop building new coal. So um, we now have 30 countries and 22 states and 31 uh, corporates who are committed to powering past coal. Um, and we've seen uh, initiatives such as um, uh, from the finance sector, Allianz, um, and uh, 12 other pension funds and insurers with something like $2.4 trillion in assets under management, which have committed that their investments will be zero carbon. They will be investing in zero carbon by 2050. So they're really pledging to shift away. Um, we've also seen some countries come forward with pledges for finance for the Green Climate Fund. Um, so we've had Iceland, Sweden, and Denmark uh, make announcements today, which really join some of those who've already come forward with announcements, Germany, Norway, France, UK, and Canada. And altogether, that looks like something like $7 billion U.S. dollars pledge for the next round of the Green Climate Fund. Um, we're still looking for other countries to come forward to double what their contributions were in 2014 to the GCF, um, and ideally bringing in new countries that haven't committed before. Um, so those are just some of the high levels on uh, what we're starting to see from some of the countries stepping up, some of the business sector and the other leaders uh, on the stage today. Thank you, Reese. Thank you, Helen. Um, yeah, I appreciate that. And now over to David Wasiel, International Climate Director. Um, thank you. And, and I'll be brief and we can move to questions um, quickly. I think just a couple of things to add, I would say. Um, one is that there were some um, small bright spots. Um, uh, President Macron of France called for the European Union to increase its commitment under the Paris Agreement, its NDC, uh, to 55% reductions below 1990 levels uh, by 2030. Uh, and that was building, he said, on uh, what uh, the incoming European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has laid out as, um, as her objective, ultimately, in terms of EU reduction. So that set an important marker, though, of course, uh, it still remains up to the uh, EU as a whole to um, pursue that, and in fact, I think that is one of the critical questions, um, as Helen said, this coming year is going to be a time of scrutiny and eyes on many of uh, the large emitters as to what they'll do, and I think one part of that puzzle is, in fact, um, what the European Union uh, does. The other the other um, quick piece that I would point out is uh, that um, President uh, Modi, um, uh, Mr. Modi, rather, of India, um, indicated that uh, he is now committing to uh, a target for renewable energy of 450 gigawatts. It wasn't clear what timing um, that was set for, but that is uh, an ambitious uh, gigawatts target, um, potentially, depending on that timing um, and how far into the future that uh, will be. But again, he did not indicate that that would be part of a forthcoming uh, Paris commitment, forthcoming NDC uh, under Paris. And so the questions were left open there. And then finally, I'll uh, note that China, um, also critically important, did not uh, indicate what to do on its uh, NDC next year, um, although it did point to the progress it's been making in overachieving some of the targets it already has in place including around carbon intensity and also 
uh, in its forest policies. So lots of questions, I think, um, emerged, um, some bits of uh, little uh, bits, I guess one could say, of bright spots, but, um, but the overall picture, as Helen conveyed, is one where um, the questions are about what, in fact, uh, these major emitters and others are going to do next year, and uh, eyes will be on them. Thank you. Thank you, David. And I'll turn the floor over to Yamid Dagnat, um, Senior Associate. Yes, I think that from greater speech on how dare you come in with political actions that can compromise our future to we are watching you, uh, we are holding you accountable. I think you know we need to see COP25 as you know a moment where countries will be held accountable. Uh, we are going to leave your energy summit uh, to digest what we heard. You know, the, you know, as Helen said, there has been good initiatives. Uh, we, we heard from the real economy, the, the private sector, some, uh, some catalysts. Um, and we need to see actually through the COP and uh, towards the COP how countries are going to take this into account to inform uh, their process in enhancing their climate plans. We also, at the COP, need to make sure that, you know, we, we're making a progress in accelerating uh, the transition and, and not postponing that transition. And this also uh, will rely on a number of decisions on issues that have been outstanding that could not be resolved in Katowice, uh, like, you know, how we're going to use market mechanisms in a way that does not compromise environmental integrity, uh, that generates trust among countries, and you know, how are we going to really give the right pace of our moments to review and to come up with enhanced NDC all the time. Um, so this, there's a couple of issues that will be indeed uh, looked at. I think in, on finance, it's very, uh, it's, it's very good that we heard some countries pledging and, and doubling. But this process uh, uh, for the Green Climate Fund continues until ahead of the COP, uh, and there's going to be, uh, we need to continue to pressure countries, uh, those countries who have not pledged uh, during the UNSG Summit to do so uh, by October. And uh, we're also going to have a conversation on the way countries can enhance their capacity to actually access you know, all those funding and to do better in enhancing their ambition. And we heard that uh, request on funding also from small islands, uh, very loud and clear. Um, and I think that this is also another thing to, to watch out for. Great. Thank you very much, Yamin. Um, and now we'll um, move over to questions. But before we do that really quickly, I just wanted to mention, I mean, Helen said at the, at the top um, that um, as of today, there are 65 countries that have signaled they will enhance their NDCs, the National Climate Plans, um, by 2020. And just to be clear, you might have seen some other numbers. The UN released a, a, a list, or sorry, it was actually the Chilean presidency um, when they called it the Climate Ambition Alliance, um, that 59 countries um, have um, intended to enhance. Um, our tracker, the, the um, 2020 NDC tracker, looks at additional comments and, and uh, verified commentary we've had from other countries. And so the total number that we um, can share is that indeed 65 countries are uh, willing to enhance their NDCs. So I just wanted to clarify that. 
you've probably had received an email from me um, with the tracker information, but if you've not seen that, um, please do shoot me an email. Um, but with that, I'll hand it over to the operator to explain how we will handle the Q&A. Thank you. We will now begin the question and answer session. If you would like to ask a question, please press star followed by the number one on your phone. Unmute your phone and record your name when prompted. Your name is required to introduce your question. And to cancel, please press star followed by the number two. One moment, please, to see for our incoming questions. And speakers, we have two questions in queue. One moment, please, while I gather the names. Thank you for rating speakers. Our first question comes from Seth Borenstein of Associated Press. Your line is now open. Yes, thank you. And by the way, it, the Chilean president used the number 66 in his speech today. So I went with 66 instead of 65 or 58. Um, I don't know how that differs from yours. Um, in terms for Helen, uh, you talked about uh, you're not hearing, you're not getting the climate leadership from the major economies. Can you be specific and say who, uh, who's been the biggest problem right now? Who, who, who's the biggest laggard of today? What country comes up the shortest today? And uh, what kind? And, and flip side, is there a country that that came up the biggest? If you had to choose one big laggard and one big winner, who would they be? And if you, you can give me two if you want on each. Um, thanks very much. I think um, if, we're, if we're talking about uh, laggards, um, I do think that uh, at the moment the one who is not really coming to the table and engaging um, would have to be the USA um, since they have pulled out, uh, announced intention to pull out of the uh, Paris Agreement. Interestingly, today um, Russia did come forward and ratify the Paris Agreement, so we have countries that are continuing, who are part of the Paris Agreement and continuing to move forward on that. Um, so I would suggest that. In terms of the, um, in terms of who's really stepped up, I, I, I know you're looking for, for one at the moment. I would actually say, though, what we have seen is particularly some of the vulnerable developing economies, uh, the small island states. There was a really strong and powerful message from the Prime Minister of Barbados, for example. Um, but a number of them were really making impassioned pleas because they are absolutely on the front lines of seeing the devastation that is wrought through climate change today um, and are most at risk. So they are both making very clear, strong pleas to the major economies who are responsible for emissions to step up and do what they need to on emissions, as well as to provide the finance needed to help support uh, countries who are vulnerable in building their resilience. Um, but they also themselves, a number of these countries, are the ones who are committing to early targets for going carbon neutral, for stepping up ambition, despite facing very difficult circumstances and, and you know, um, uh, uh, less finance available to actually do so. So I wouldn't pinpoint one on those who are really leading, but I would give a particular call out to the small island states, the vulnerable small island states. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Omer Irfan of Vox. Your line is open. 
Hi, thanks for uh, putting this call together. Uh, I know the summit is still going on, but on balance, can you say whether or not you found this, uh, these proceedings to be disappointing? And uh, what does it say about the uh, run-up to the conference of parties coming up in December in Chile? Great, thank you. Ben, Holly, you want to take the first crack at that? I can take a first crack, and others please layer in. I mean, I do think what this means is this was an incredibly important moment to really have countries starting to signal the ambition they're planning to deliver next year in terms of enhanced ambition. I think we now need to see this as really the springboard, and from here, every day, every week, eyes are going to be on uh, the major economies, the countries that need to step up to see when they will be making announcements, what they will be coming forward. And, of course, COP25 in Santiago and Chile is going to be a key moment where there will be, again, a lot of public um, pressure and uh, public scrutiny and accountability to see whether these countries are stepping up uh, to what they need to do to make the commitments to go uh, to develop both uh, enhanced uh, national uh, commitments, nationally determined contributions next year, and also long-term net zero um, uh, strategies for 2050. So I think that will be the case and really just sort of are they listening to the public, the publics who are the public in the streets or demanding action, uh, the voting public increasingly very strongly looking to leaders to prioritize climate change. So that to me is going to come to the next big moment will be COP25 in Chile um, where there will again be enormous uh, attention on whether they're able to step up. Thank you. Uh, David, do you want to weigh in as well? Uh, no, I think it covers it. And Yamid may want to touch on some of the critical um, negotiating issues. I think some of them have to do with ambition. And it'll be important that all um, countries come to the table at Chile um, and beyond to um, make sure that the Paris Agreement is fit for purpose in terms of being able to stimulate and, and mobilize ambition. Yes, so we know that the geopolitics were tough. So I think it was good that UNSG, the UN Secretary General uh, put this issue high in the agenda and pushed countries. But it is not the end of the road, as you know Helen said it. And this is why the COP25 and the COP26 are going to be important moments really to, to get to where we need to be. Um, so... As I said, you know, COP25, we need to provide the space to digest and to see, uh, to still push countries to see, okay, you committed to a number of initiatives. How far is it going to help you to enhance, to do what you committed to do and to enhance your NDC and to, so that, you know, by COP26, which is the moment of truth, you know, we are getting closer collectively to where we need to be. In addition to that, we need to make sure that you know, the decisions on some of the rules, because we have not finalized all the rules of the game yet uh, in Katowice. We did most of them, but not all of them, especially on how we're going to use the private sector, the market mechanisms to accelerate action, to make sure it does that in a way that uh, does not create the board counting, confusion, and distort the market. It's going to be important that we also make some good decisions there that we decide whether we're going to have targets 
with an implementation uh, period of five years or ten years. At the moment, countries can have, as you could see, uh, have targets for 2025 or 2030. You know, we want to have a, a common uh, period and to have, you know, that period uh, to be uh, as align as possible with the five-year vision because there's a sense of urgency. And so we want, you know, those decisions to help give the certainty, the long-term certainty that we need, but also the predictability that we need to go further faster. And of course, there's going to be also the issue of, there's going to be issues on the impact, you know, and how countries will be able to be equipped to address some impact and also beyond adaptation. So we know this is going to come up as well. Thank you very much. Next question, please. Thank you. Our next question comes from Marianne Leville of Inside Climate News. Your line is open. Hi, thanks so much for doing this news conference. Um, you said that uh, there are 66 countries setting long-term carbon neutral goals and five new ones came up today. I, I wonder if you could uh, iterate or reiterate who those five are. Did, David, do you have that at your fingertips? If not, we can follow up shortly after the call to gather that yeah. for you. There's actually, this is David, there are two sets of countries actually. So there's the 66 that was laid out by the Chilean president as part of that ambition alliance this morning. Um, yeah. There's also a carbon neutrality coalition, which is distinct, and it's the carbon neutrality coalition um, for which there were um, five new members. I think um, in the, the, the ambition alliance is quite important in that it's a number of countries coming forward to say that they uh, are on a pathway or intending to get on a pathway to net zero by 2050. Um, and that's a larger number, quite a larger number than we've had before. I think it's um, matched in a sense by um, also those countries that are seeing um, that the, the importance of coming forward with stronger Paris commitments, stronger NDCs next year. One of the things that's quite important um, is, in fact, that countries think about what they need to do by 2030 in the context of 2050. Um, it's not always that a long-term strategy has to be in place to do that, but in order to reach uh, decarbonization globally by 2050, the road to that has to go through 2030, has to go through those near-term commitments um, for all countries. And uh, so seeing it in that context, in that light, is, is quite critical. I, I'm trying. Thank you for that. I, I'm trying to get an idea of which countries, like even before um, the summit began this morning, you had 65 countries who were raising ambitions. It, it, were there any countries that announced something new today? Well, the 65, just to clarify, on uh, raising ambition uh, next year um, for 2030 targets principally, that um, was uh, based on a, an announcement made by uh, made this morning from the Chilean presidency. I assume they will speak to that at the end of the day today as well. And mm -hmm. so um, that is not, that's not uh, an old number. That is a very fresh number that is part of this, this summit. Okay. Um, uh, all right. Um, 
Yes, anything that you can get me on the the carbon neutrality and any new, new countries uh, on that path that that would be great. It, it, what one more kind of question is? Uh, I, I wonder if you could comment on. Uh, I understand that Greta Thunberg and uh, these young people are filing a suit against some of the major polluters. What, what do you think the significance of that action is? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, anyway, Helen, do you have some initial reflections on that? I'm not sure how in-depth you've been able to follow that new development. I'm, I'm, I have to say I'm not following it particularly closely, but I do know, I mean, here in the U.S., we have the Giuliano uh, and, and, and others versus the U.S. government filing a suit about the duty of the government to actually protect uh, children uh, from damages of climate change in the future. Um, and so, and I think one of the things we've seen as it's sort of been progressing through the courts and through, uh, you know, um, attempts to, to halt it uh, is that this is actually potentially a really important mechanism right now to actually get governments to move forward. Had similar developments in the Netherlands, where a number of people actually did take the government to court and said, "We actually need a stronger climate action in order to protect the citizens of the Netherlands, and that is the duty of the government to do so." And the government stepped up action on on um, on that case. So it is it, climate is a difficult issue, and that there's an intergenerational challenge. The impacts are already hitting us absolutely today, but they're getting worse and worse. And some of the generations in the future aren't here today um, to speak for themselves. Some of them are, and they're in the streets and in the UN building today with the youth. And I, I think that's been fantastic to actually have the representatives of, of youth uh, here over the weekend and today to really speak to the, to the, to the rights of future generations um, and demand action. But the courts is another way uh, going through a legislative the, the legal process is another way to actually demand that um, and ensure that governments take the appropriate action to, to, to you know, protect the rights and the well-being of future generations. So uh, I think it's something which at the moment where we're not seeing enough action is definitely one of the tools that um, should be employed. Great. Thank you. And thank you for the question. And I would just say if you have follow-up questions or things we can resources we can send to you, um, please email me. Uh, this is Reese Gerholtz, and I'll do my best to uh, respond to that very quickly after this call. Um, and so we can go on to the next question. As a reminder, you can press star one to get into the queue. Um, but we do have another question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Iselin of NRK Norway. Your line is open. Hey, thank you for the session. Um, so about the commitments for 2030 and these 65 countries who have committed to the NDC enhancements, are there any other countries than Germany who have announced exactly how much lower emissions they are aiming for in 2030? Thank you. Um, David, can you take that question? Um, there are some uh, European member states that have um, uh, indicated that they plan to increase their um, their national uh, targets, um, and of course that it isn't um, the same as the um, Paris commitment because the European Union has a 
a um, a unified approach to its target in the in the Paris framework. Um, but they are planning to um, increase their uh, national and domestic targets. I believe that there are eight of those guys. I'd have to go uh, back to the Ambition Alliance numbers. We seem they have it at hand. But um, uh, I believe there were roughly eight of those countries um, that are planning to increase their own uh, targets for 2030. Okay. So, do, do you have a list of uh, of these sixty five countries that I can get hold of somewhere? Yes, yes, we do. Um, so, if you just send me a quick email, um, this is all on our Deborah's website, um, the uh, twenty twenty NDC tracker. Uh, okay. I can send the link um, after this I'll call. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And, and just and to be clear, are, so uh, often. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was saying we're often referring to um, the uh, official press release from the UN that went out this morning, as well as the um, Climate Ambition Alliance that the uh, Chilean presidency released this morning. Um, those are also lists you want to be familiar with. If you don't have those already, uh, let me know. I'll email those to you. Helen? Okay. All right. Sorry, I, I, I was just going to add that both the NDC tracker that we have on the WI website and we have an LTS tracker, long-term strategy trackers, are going to continuously be updated in real time as countries come forward either today or over the, the um, coming months with new commitments so that that's a one-stop plot shop where you can go and actually look at what countries have said what, uh, what they're committing to, um, whether it's just to come forward next year with more ambition or as they start to put numbers uh, on the table, then that will be updated and you can see it there. We are trying to update it as we go today, but I think as you've already heard from some of the different numbers being cited and, and others, Chilean uh, government and others citing other numbers. It's really a moving target, which is exciting, but um, it does mean uh, uh, try, we'll have to sort of really consolidate after, after today and see where we stand. Okay, thank you. This is David, just to um, uh, slightly uh, modify what I had said earlier, it's 11 countries in the Ambition Alliance that have indicated that they plan to increase their uh, national targets for 2030. So those are outside in NDC, um, but also obviously very relevant to what the European Union is ultimately able to do in terms of the level of ambition it would seek in its NDC. And the list of these 11 countries can be found on any of these NDC tracker pages too, or? No, we are focused on the NDCs uh, per se. That is to say that, that the commitments that countries, or in the case of the European Union, the European Union as a whole makes under the Paris Agreement. So those countries, those specific countries, um, which are member states of the European Union, we don't we don't reflect, but we can certainly send you that list. Uh, it's in that statement. Uh, from the Chilean presidency for the Ambition Alliance this morning. Okay. Yeah, thanks. Great. Thank you. Let's go to the next question, please. Thank you, speakers. And we still have four questions in queue. Allow me one moment to get their names. Thank you. Thank you for waiting, speakers. Our next question comes from Jean Chemnick of ENE News. Your line is open. Hi. Uh, thanks for doing this. Just another way of getting at, uh, you know, the difference between the 2030 target group and the um, 
2050 target group, but also maybe more broadly, you know, is there is there kind of a disconnect developing between what and countries are pledging to do in the near term, um, you know, how quickly they're going to update NDCs or how aggressive those updates might be, and sort of a growing consensus pretty much from everybody that 1.5 is the goal and that, you know, there needs to be that net zero by 2050. Is there, is it easier perhaps in some cases to have a long-term target of net zero, but they may not be filling in the details sooner than that? Is that a problem? Um, I, I would say that in some cases, in some ways, it is easier to set that long-term target, which is why we're seeing quite a few countries come forward and be able to say, yes, we will go to net zero by 2050. That is what the science is saying we need to do, and we can commit to that. Um, uh, I I think they will still, to be able to make that kind of commitment, that's still a pretty big commitment. So they will have needed to do some of the sort of groundwork to make sure they can get agreement and do think that's practical. Um, what, What needs to happen now is they need to then work out what is the trajectory to get there. What does that look like, and what are the policies and actions to take them there? And part of the way on that trajectory is uh, is 2030, and uh, next year as countries come forward with uh, proposals on and, and uh, you know commitments on how they will enhance their NDC for 2030 or, or thereabouts, um, they need to do all the detailed calculations of how exactly they think they might get there. What are the actions that will take them there? Um, but I think actually having the combination of these long-term strategies to 2050 uh, focused on net zero, ideally, uh, that combined with uh, a 2030 sort of midterm uh, approach, which is enhanced action compared to Paris and really working out the details of that, the combination of the two is going to be incredibly powerful and something we haven't seen before. Um, in the, the past of the Paris Agreement, in most cases, countries did not have a long-term uh, focus on how they were actually going to decarbonize beyond the period of the Paris commitment. Um, and, of course, the risk is that e- even while decarbonizing during this period, you could actually be locking in some of the infrastructure and choices, energy choices, transport choices, which would make it hard to keep decarbonizing beyond this period. So by being able to combine the two, I think we're going to have something that is much more rich and much more um, valuable uh, in terms of a real practical and actionable strategy uh, for countries to take. But, yes, in many cases, I think that we will see the actual long-term strategy, the long-term goal of going to net zero come forward first and then trying to work out what's the trajectory to get through and what does that mean for what we can commit to in 2030. But I don't think it's necessarily a problem. I think it's actually something which in the end will be positive, providing we get both. <laughs> we want both the, the enhanced uh, uh, short-term target and also the long-term net zero. Thanks. Great. Great. Thank you. And if others have questions, I mean, some people might have joined kind of late. Just press star one to get into queue. Uh, otherwise, after the next question, please. Thank you, Reed. Our next question comes from Molly Inking of Chris. Your line is open. Hi, thank you so much for organizing this call. Um, and I actually was one of those people who joined late, so if people could just um, say their names before they respond, that would be awesome, really helpful for me. Sorry about that. Um, so in talk among world leaders of solutions today or actions that can be taken, were there any that were trending or mentioned often? I'm thinking of 
of the Democratic presidential debates, people like to talk about, for example, like working with farmers to sequester carbon um, or reforestation efforts. Like there are certain things that come up a lot. Did you notice any of that today? David, do you want to take that one? I think. Okay. Oh, oh, oh sorry. Yeah. Good. Go ahead. Yeah. No, happy for David to start, and then I can add some. Go ahead. Yeah, please go. Well, I, I was going to say a, a couple of things, um, and then I hope others do add. I mean, one that I think has been very strong here is about commitments to not build new coal or to shift away from coal. Um, I think this was something in the lead-up to the summit that the U.N. Secretary General emphasized very heavily, the importance of um, shifting away from coal possibly. We do not have the carbon space to build new coal. So that was one that I think we saw. I do think we saw or heard a lot more about nature-based solutions, um, including both uh, investing in sort of more productive um, agricultural lands, which are lower carbon, um, uh, halting deforestation and really tackling the crisis around deforestation in some regions, as well as restoring degraded lands. Um, those are some of the ones that I think we've started to see more in the speeches today than we have, for example, in Paris. I think there's more awareness, growing awareness, um, that this is really a major part of the solution set. Uh, it's estimated that uh, land use related actions could account for something like one third of the emissions reductions that we need uh, going forward. Um, so there's a lot more focus on restoring degraded lands, halting deforestation, more productive use of agriculture. And the other one that's come in more recently even is the connection with the oceans and how we can tackle climate change in oceans. So those are some of the ones that really sort of came to the fore a lot more than in the previous, previous round that I could hear. Uh, David, Yamid, others? Um, this is David. I, I was just going to. Uh, this is David Wasco. Um, uh, I, I would just uh, underscore what was just said about uh, nature-based solutions. Um, I think that did come through strongly. Obviously, in addition to um, comments about uh, renewable energy, uh, for example, from um, Minister Modi of India. Um, the other thing that I just want to underscore is that many countries. And, you know, for obvious reasons, I guess, uh, particularly vulnerable ones especially, focused uh, their remarks on adaptation and resilience issues. And I, that was not um, uh, sort of missing from the puzzle. I think that there was quite an emphasis on that by um, those countries who are going to be hit hardest. Um, but you also had countries that um, are larger, uh, some developed countries even, uh, talking about adaptation and resilience, sometimes in the context of their climate um, finance uh, that they are planning to provide. But also more generally, I think the issue of impacts um, did come through at a number of points today. Yes, and this is why, based on what David said, uh, there was a big plea for scaling up finance. So it came a lot with some of the pledges, additional pledges made, um, you know, by some countries to replenish the green climate fund. So that was welcomed, and uh, but we need more, and um, not only the scale, but also uh, the type and facilitation of access to that finance. Uh, so that was also a, a, a major area of discussion, um, public and private uh, finance. 
Thank you. Next question, Thank please. You so much. Our next question comes from Justine Palma of The Beverage. Your line is open. Hi, this is Justine Coleman with The Verge. Thanks so much. Um, I wanted to ask um, what the significance is of the three biggest carbon emitters, the U.S., China, and India, um, not giving um, not giving a solid commitment to up their NDCs today, and particularly what that means for the the twenty you know setting up for the twenty twenty deadline next year. Thank you. Thank you. Helen, would you like to take the first time? Yeah, I can, I can start off. Um, I mean, I think what we're actually seeing on the ground in both China and India um, is actually a lot of action, which I hope will be able to enable them to step up their commitment next year. Um, so while there's not a clear, strong statement here that they will do so, I actually think they are gearing up quite well to, to do so. Um, and so let me just give you a couple of examples. In both uh, India and China, we've got rapid deployment of new renewable energy, really rapid deployment of solar in particular, um, which is helping. There are strong concerns about the health impacts um, of fossil fuel uh, pollution, particularly coal, but also going beyond that. And certainly, I mean, yesterday the Tsinghua University in China released a fantastic study, which was actually about the synergies between um, air pollution and climate change and how there's space in China to really step up action um, on climate change in a way which would be much better uh, for health of uh, people in China. It's, uh, the air pollution is a major challenge there. We're seeing similar things in India. So I think there's actually a lot of action already happening. I think there's a lot of pressure. Um, those are also countries, particularly China, where you've got major new developments in terms of green finance and trying to shift um, investment uh, towards uh, more sustainable action. So I think there's a lot still to be done, but there's also opportunities for them really to come forward uh, next year. So I think this is a moment where the rest of the world needs to keep watching this space. Um, and uh, keep asking uh, questions and encouraging them to move into uh, an opportunity for really ambitiously stepping up action. Um, this is David. Again, if – I'm sorry. Go ahead. So sorry. Go ahead, David. Thank you. No, I was just going to add the European Union to your set at the top tier. Yeah. Um, I think the question is quite important, actually, as to where the European Union goes. Um, also, a recognition, um, as Helen laid out, of many of the economic benefits, the health benefits, jobs benefits. Um, and uh, there will be a critical process taking place over the course of the next year, and starting quite quickly, in fact, um, once the new commission uh, president and other um, parts of her cabinet come into place starting in November about what that is going to look like. And so um, I, I just, in, you know, encourage everyone essentially to keep eyes on that because I do think that that, um, that piece of the puzzle is also, as you said, you know, critical in terms of who's at the top tier. And just to, and this is, I mean, just to add that, um, you know, countries like Japan, like Australia, should not be left too much off the hook, too. I think there are uh, countries expected to lead in terms of, you know, to scale up their actions, but also in providing finance. Um, and we, we do hope that they're going to really step up their game as well. 
Um, so yes, it, it's a broader range, um, and each of those countries has different you know, circumstances to take into account. But yes, um, just we'll have that. thank you. Thanks so much. And when it comes to the U.S., um, I know we've touched on them, but you know, as as one of the biggest emitters, how um, uh, how much is the U.S. derailing global efforts? I guess. Um, at its federal level, even though we're we're seeing these subnational actors stepping up. So, I mean, there's no question that the lack of action on the federal level is definitely um, hampering the U.S.'s ability to to take the kind of leadership role that we need. There's absolutely no question about that. But I do think what we've seen at the subnational level, from states, from cities, from universities, from corporates is really quite impressive, and sometimes um, uh, sometimes that isn't given enough credit. At the moment, we've got some of the latest numbers that have just last week, and, and basically, um, from what we can see, something like uh, 65% of the U.S. population, U.S. people, uh, live in states or cities which have said that they are still in or working in uh, universities or at universities or companies which have said they are still in the Paris Agreement. So something like 65% of Americans are represented in one of these um, one of these subnational entities that have really committed to staying in, in the Paris Agreement. Um, so we've seen a lot there. We did some analysis last year at WRI working with a number of others looking at uh, in something called America's Pledge and fulfilling America's Pledge. And basically what we found is that the subnational action, if it continues to build at the pace that we've seen recently, um, could reduce emissions by over 24% below 2005 levels um, in, in 2025 for the U.S. And that would actually put us within striking distance of the U.S. Uh, National Pledge, Paris Pledge, so, um, so there's quite a bit that has been building there. Now, going beyond 2025 to continue that momentum really requires federal reengagement to make that move fast. And of course, even even within striking distance of what was uh, the NDC announced in Paris is not enough for what we need for the globe. So we're still behind, certainly behind. But I wouldn't um, I wouldn't discredit uh, what's actually happening in cities, states, businesses, and, and and investors, and I think that sort of leadership is really starting to drive drive action, and it's something which often the politicians are behind the curve. Not not just in the U.S., definitely in the U.S., but also elsewhere. The federal politicians aren't quite stepping up to the momentum that we're starting to see on the ground. Thank you. And um, was it Helen speaking? Just want to confirm. Yes, sorry, that was Helen Mountford. That's right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Rachel Ramirez of Christ Magazine. Magazine, your line is open. Hi. Um, I was just wondering what are some of the obstacles these countries might face in um, phasing out fossil fuels, eliminating oil exploration, such as, like, how do you think would the oil and gas and coal industries respond, possibly. Thank you. I could start briefly and then, David, um, it would be great if you could layer in here, too, from some of the work that you've been doing. Um, we, What we're seeing increasingly is actually having economies that are very dependent on oil and gas or coal, for example, is really risky. 
the markets just aren't there anymore. Um, there's some we've seen in the past very volatile prices around these. So having an economy where you've really built an economy dependent on these is a risky proposition. And we're seeing some interesting initiatives in a number of countries to really look at how to diversify the economy, how to transition to an economy that's based on other types of sources of income, and how to help manage that transition, in particular for the workers who may be affected um, in those industries and often in very particular regions where those industries are based. So, I, I mean, I could mention just a couple of initiatives we've seen where we're starting to see really a strong focus on a just transition uh, for the energy sector, and that includes, for example, Norway, which has had a very uh, an economy that's been very heavily dependent and built on um, oil and gas sector in particular, um, as we know. Now, they have done an exercise working across the sectors of the economy, working with different regions to look at how, what does the future look like where they're not dependent on oil and gas, where they are going low carbon, and really started on the basis of that to develop new innovations and new industries um, in different regions. Their sovereign wealth fund, which is the biggest in the world, uh, something like $1 trillion in assets uh, under management, they decided earlier this year that they, uh, they're recommending to the government that they no longer invest their sovereign wealth fund in oil and gas. They've already been moving away from coal. Now they're suggesting they move away from oil and gas, not for any environmental reasons, but purely for financial reasons, because it is not a safe financial bet anymore. Now, that sovereign wealth fund was built entirely on oil and gas revenues. So it's an interesting move that from a strictly financial perspective, they're saying they need to move. But we've seen in other places, and one example is Italy, where NL, um, which, is a, which is a major energy company, um, has to close a number of coal plants over the next uh, few years. Um, in Italy, and what they've committed to do is stay in place where those coal plants are, uh, which otherwise might lead to high unemployment. They're going to stay in place. They're going to look for alternatives uh, with the regional governments and see whether it's possible to do renewables uh, where they have the where they have the coal power plant. And if it's not a, a good place to do renewables, look at building tech hubs instead. So looking for uh, opportunities for employment for those who've been there. So. It's really essential that we do look at the impacts on workers and how to do that transition. I think we're starting to see some exciting examples uh, in countries around the world, including Uruguay, for example, um, and not just in, in, in the developed economies, but that's something we need to do more and more of. But what we should not do is pretend that there's actually going to be a future in fossil fuels. Um, uh, that's not where the jobs are going to be. That's not where the market be. And it's better to help transition communities now early in a smooth way rather than face an abrupt uh, cutoff. But, David, do you want to say anything from some of the work you've been doing on Just Transition? Uh, I, I think that, that covers it. Um, but happy if you have further questions after the call to go deeper on that. Thank you. Thank you. Our next question comes from Scott Snowden of Forbes. Your line is open. Hello there. Thank you ever so much for uh, taking the time to take the call and this question. Uh, got to find my notes now. Um, whilst we've been talking, um, a story has broken about um, Greta Thunberg and 15 others who are filing a lawsuit 
against um, six countries, Argentina, Brazil, France, Germany, and Turkey. Sorry, five countries. Um, and uh, they are claiming that the, those countries are violating their rights as children. If successful, the United Nations would classify the climate crisis as a children's rights crisis. Um, so her aim and is obviously to, to uh, work with other nations, to get these countries to work with other nations to forge binding emissions reduction targets um, and generally a sharp change from current international efforts that so far have basically <laughs> rearranged chairs on the deck of the Titanic, for want of a better expression. I'm just wondering, if you don't mind, to, to, to take this, this whole discussion to, into a sort of slightly more political kind of arena, why she has chosen those countries, why the USA hasn't been listed, um, and, and that's it really, sort of what your take on that is. Thank you for the question, and I would say if it is that breaking, um, we may not be prepared to offer commentary at this moment, um, but uh, Helen, <laughs> your thoughts? Just immediate reactions would, would be really interesting. Thank you. Well, I, I mean, I think in some ways this is not a surprising move. Um, the youth in the streets have been saying uh, repeatedly, and when Greta came this morning to the U.N., she was really quite direct that what adults are doing is absolutely not enough, and they are jeopardizing the futures, the lives and the livelihood of children and those who are not even alive today but will be in the future. So I think they've been very, very clear about this. They've been very clear that they expected countries to come today and really deliver on much more ambition and commitments to step up action in line with the science, listening to the science, and deliver action uh, next year. And I don't think we've seen uh, what they were looking for and what we needed, uh, particularly from some of the major economies. So um, the fact that they're now taking it to the courts, uh, good for them. I think that's a fantastic initiative. In the U.S., I would note there is already a court case that has been brought by the youth, the Juliana versus uh, the government, um, uh, on pretty much the same thing, saying that the government actions are not sufficient to protect the futures of, of children. The Netherlands, there's been something similar, uh, which has already gone through the courts successfully. So uh, I think uh, taking this to the courts, I can, I can see why they would do that, uh, given the climate crisis and the fact that uh, they're not seeing the reaction from governments and adults that they are asking for. Great. Thank you. And thank you to all of our speakers for joining the call today. Um, I recognize it's a very busy moment for you all as you're tracking the Climate Action Network. So uh, we will end the call there. Uh, and again, if you do want a recording, um, you can email me. This is Reese Gerholt. That's R-H-Y-S dot G-E-R-H-O-L-D-T at W-R-I dot org. Um, so just let me know if you want that recording, and then please, if you have other follow-up questions or questions about sources or, or links that we referenced, um, please just let me know. Otherwise, um, have a great day, and we'll do what we can to help you um, later today and in the future. All right. Take care, everyone. Thank you, speakers. And that concludes today's conference. Thank you for your participation. You may now disconnect.